This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, now the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition. And just to name a few names, their pro athlete team includes Matt Fultz, Paige Klassen, Drew Ruana, Jonathan Segrist, Natalia Grossman, Melina Costanza, Brittany Gorris, Jordan Cannon, Katie Lambert, Jimmy Webb, and Daniel Woods. The list goes on and on. Basically, the who's who of high-performance rock climbing, they are all using Fizzy Vantage products. I personally love the supercharged collagen. I'm obsessed with getting my fingers stronger, and I want to make sure that I'm giving my body all the building blocks it needs to make stronger tendons and ligaments. So I take collagen every day to help with that, and I really think it helps. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's fizzyvantage.com. Use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. This episode is also brought to you by Crimped. This might be the best tool in the app store when it comes to training for rock climbing. Here's the deal. The Crimped app gives you access to 75 different workouts created by world-class climbers and coaches, Tom Randall and Ollie Tor of Lattice Training, for free. So you can download the Crimped app right now and see if you like it. And if you want even more training power right in your pocket, consider signing up for Crimped Plus. Crimped Plus unlocks three main things. Instead of 75 workouts you get in the free version, you will have access to over 200 workouts and progressions. Second thing, with Crimped Plus, you can create your own custom training plans right there in the app. And finally, you'll unlock a collection of skill templates designed to bootstrap your training and focus on specific areas of improvement. For example, if you want to improve your finger strength or get more flexible or conquer one-arm pull-ups or get better at endurance for sport climbs, well, guess what? There's a skill template for each of those things and many more that will guide you through the process. So check out Crimped. Go to crimped.com or download the Crimped app for free from the App Store and consider signing up for Crimped Plus. Crimped, training on your own has never been easier. And finally, this episode is brought to you by Arcteryx. When Jordan Cannon, a young climber infatuated with climbing history, meets climbing legend Mark Hudon, a Yosemite big wall free climbing pioneer, they form an unlikely partnership around a common goal. Jordan wants to free climb the free rider on El Capitan in a day, and Mark hopes to free the route in as many days as it takes and accomplish his lifelong goal of free climbing El Capitan. Follow their story in Free As Can Be, a short climbing film brought to you by Arcteryx. I watched the film over the summer. It's 31 minutes long. It's so well done. It's a story of climbing partnership and adventure. And if you love this podcast, especially if you love my episode with Jordan Cannon, or if you love this episode with Tommy Caldwell, if you're super into El Cap and Yosemite and hearing stories from the big walls, then I know you'll love this film. So check it out. Head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx, free as can be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Once again, you can head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx, free as can be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Arcteryx presents free as can be. And we hope you enjoy the film. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, 
And my guest today is Tommy Caldwell. I, of course, have been wanting to talk to Tommy from the very beginning. He has been on my list of hopeful interviews from day one. I'm sure most of you know who he is, but it's my job to give you an introduction to Tommy, so I will do that. Tommy Caldwell is the most accomplished big wall free climber in the world. He is Mr. El Cap himself. This guy has done more free climbs on El Capitan than anybody else. He holds the speed record on the nose on El Cap with Alex Honnold under two hours. He's done some of the most badass link-ups in Yosemite Valley along with Alex Honnold and on his own. And of course, he's probably done more to make free climbing on El Cap cool than anybody else, except for maybe Lynn Hill, of course, who was in last week's episode. Be sure to check that one out if you haven't. And what Tommy is best known for is having free climbed the Dawn Wall. The Dawn Wall is the most difficult big wall free route in the world. It's a project that took Tommy six years to complete. There's a film about it. Tommy wrote a book about it, and I'm sure you've all heard about it ad nauseum. But for good reason. It's one of the most badass things that's happened in rock climbing, and it's just such a cool testament to what the human body and human mind are capable of. I loved this conversation with Tommy. We sat down in a little recording booth in Estes Park, Colorado, towards the end of August, and we covered lots of different topics. We talked about Tommy's recent Achilles injury, We talked about some of the most significant chapters in his climbing outside of climbing in Yosemite and why he felt like his time spent at the Fortress of Solitude doing Kryptonite and Flex Luthor were significant to him. We talked about training for the Dawn Wall and why he sent it the season that he sent it and all the different factors that came into play to make him so incredibly dominant the season that he sent the Donwall. We talked about undone lines on El Cap and what Tommy thinks would be the king line on El Cap that hasn't been free climbed yet. And we had a super cool conversation about writing his book and the vulnerability and the reflection that was part of that process of writing his book and the effect that writing that book had on his relationship with his dad and how that has unfolded over time and how reflecting on his upbringing has impacted Tommy's parenting philosophy and how he has thought about raising his own kids. So all of that and much more in this conversation. Tommy's the man. It was so much fun to sit down and chat with him, and I'm really excited to share this one. So with that, we'll dive in. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Mr. El Cap himself, Tommy Caldwell. Make sure the red button's pressed. That's important. Have you ever done one and then realized that the recording didn't work? (laughs) (laughs) Don't say that. (laughs) I've done a handful of interviews like that. (laughs) You have? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's my worst nightmare. I never have I never have had that happen, thankfully. Yeah. Um, can Do you I get need a, to be close to this thing? Yeah, a little bit closer, like a, like a hands width if you can. It's a little bit forgiving, but... Yep. First question for you, Tommy. What is a Dawn Wall? What is a Dawn Wall? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making fun of the mainstream media. I just, <laughs> I just like, I got to have next level questions for Tommy Caldwell, you know? Yeah, it's like a fidget spinner, but like a slightly different version. So what is your Dawn Wall? It's like... <laughs> It's just this little thing I twiddle of... in my fingers, actually. 
<laughs> Man, I, I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, uh, sight. This is great. We're an assist, but yeah, I really appreciate you coming here. And I made you go down some stairs and you've got this like attachment thing, you know, hooked up to your leg because you're injured. And I've been thinking about that for the last week. You posted that Instagram post about a week ago, just bringing us all up to speed on this Achilles injury. And so I've thinking, I've been thinking about this conversation and about you and just kind of trying to imagine like the headspace that you must be in, you know, and I can only relate to like my own worst injury, which was just a finger, you know, it feels funny to say like a serious injury, but yeah, a bad pulley injury and, uh, you know, you're out for a few months and I was, I just remember being shocked at how hard it was and I thought I would be so much more cool with it. And then when it <laughs> happened, I was just like... You know, I, I imagine like I'm going to still go out to Smith and support my friends and rack up tons of belay points and be part of the community. And then like when it happened, I was just like, I kind of need to just go do other stuff and and put climbing out of my mind for a while. So I've been thinking about that, just knowing that, you know, sitting down to record a climbing podcast might not sound like the most fun thing you could possibly do. All that to say, I'm just really grateful that you're here. So, Well, I'm probably here because I'm injured, so <laughs> otherwise I'd be out climbing somewhere. Okay. <laughs> okay. Actually, I was supposed to be in Germany right now, so oh, know, really? it worked out well. What were you going to do in Germany? Um, it was like a combo climbing work trip, which I do a lot of these days. I've, I've, um, I'm part owner of Edelrid, the rope and hardware manufacturer, the oh. U.S. distribution company. So, I didn't actually know that. Yeah, every few... Every year I go over there for a trip and do a lot of like product design. You know, we get in their drop tower and break stuff. And then I meet up with all the other athletes and we go on a climbing trip. So it's pretty fun. That's awesome. That's yeah. super cool. Um, but I'm curious, do you mind if I read your Instagram post? About sure. Your injury? I, do yeah, yeah. I, I am curious to hear how it's been for you and, and what led you to want to share it, whether it's been cathartic. Um, but I'm, I'm just going to read it because you captured it so well in this Instagram post. This is from a week ago. I ruptured my Achilles tendon six months ago in a climbing fall on Magic Line. Then I tore it again five weeks later trying to climb in my orthopedic boot. For the first time since I was a little kid, I decided I should put climbing on hold, let my body heal and see what time off would do to my motivation. So I focused on family and work and was pleasantly surprised that my morale seemed to hold steady. Maybe climbing isn't critical to happiness. As I healed and started to make it back into the mountains, I felt an intense excitement that only time off can bring. Things were going well. I was making big plans. Then last week in physical therapy, I was hopping on one foot when I heard a loud snap like a breaking twig. I knew immediately what this meant. Another surgery, another six more months of rehab before I can properly climb. In that moment, my morale finally dipped. I haven't been talking about this. This is longer than I thought it would be. <laughs> I haven't been talking about this injury publicly because I figured what's the point? These days, I prefer my stories to either spread stoke or activate our community to get involved in our environmental issues. And I've become increasingly disenfranchised with social media. But when I think back to when I first started using social media on the Dawn Wall, I remember an incredible shared energy. Is that kind of positivity still possible in this weird algorithm controlled platform that seems more about making money than about telling stories and connecting people? Well, I could use some of that good old fashioned community stoke right now. I turned 44 a couple days ago and coming back from a year long injury is bound to be harder than it once was, but overcoming hard things is kind of what I do. So I'm thinking I'll give it another try. Tell this story of recovery the same way I used to tell stories of adventures. Stay tuned. 
Well, as you read that, there is a lot wrapped up in there. <laughs> There's a lot there, man. And I, I just really appreciate yeah. it because it's like I, I read that and I resonated like it. I just want to thank you for sharing it because I think we as a climbing community tend to do everyone in the community a big disservice when we when we hide that stuff, when we hide the the injuries and the lulls where we don't have the stoke or where we're just beating our head against something. You know, it's like we share the highlight reel all the time. Yeah. But I think it's so, like when I had that finger injury, I was like, I just remember searching the internet, trying to find like a person who had been through what I had been through and like shared the story and had a stronger finger afterwards. You know what I mean? I just like needed that to latch onto. Yeah. So I think it's rad that you're sharing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like slightly mixed about it because on one hand, I certainly understand the benefit of like being vulnerable and sharing the hard moments. But I also feel like that can be taken a little too, like sometimes it's a little eye rolly too, you know? And that's probably why I didn't share it for a long time. Like mm-hmm. the, everybody, everybody trash talks social media for being only the highlight reel. But in my mind, that's always been climbing media, like mm-hmm. climbing magazine, you know, they only show the highlights. Like that's in some ways, maybe that's okay. And maybe social media has actually allowed it to go a little bit the other way where people share their whole lives. And so there are a lot of climbers out there that like really, like share their vulnerability way more than I usually do. This was a rare post, I would say, for me. But it, but it's interesting. Like from an outside perspective, people do respond to it. Like that post got so much um, activity, almost to the point where I was like, "Did it seem like a cry for help?" It mm. wasn't really. It wasn't really meant to be a cry for help. Really, well, that's good. <laughs> you know? I mean, that means you have like a yeah. good support network. On, yeah, you know, no, like, I felt very loved, you know, for yeah. sure. And, and then the whole thing about like needing the external validation, I was like, ah, oh, that's one of the reasons I've got d- disgruntled. I'm like mixed. I go back and forth. I'm like, do I, do I, is that a good thing is or, or is it a bad thing? And it can be both. But in this moment, I think it's been a great thing. Yeah. So has it been helpful for you personally? Yeah. I mean, I think I've, I, my original reason for wanting to post and start talking about this energy injury was simply because I feel like if you want to like work hard at something if you tell I used to tell some friends you know you, you should tell somebody you should write it down you should tell somebody and then that kind of holds you accountable and I was like if I tell everybody then it will really hold me accountable <laughs> and so I think it's done that for sure cool okay yeah, like I for the first six months I like let myself chill but I honestly I was like kind of like maybe I'm getting lazy with climbing mm. and now I'm like I'm training hard I'm training my upper body hard I'm like hangboarding all the time I'm weightlifting and I'm like maybe this is actually going to be um, something that makes me stronger in certain ways. And that's kind of exciting. And it's happening partly because I talked about it. Mm. Well, I, I, that's cool. I read your uh, hangboarding post too. And um, I know Mikey Schaefer, you mentioned him and that, like how he's the one climber that you know that got a lower body injury and came back stronger. And yeah. I remember seeing that. Like I was at Smith at that time when he showed up and just like, you know, just crushed Scarface because he had this new like pocket power from hangboarding <laughs> for months and months and stuff. Totally. So. I actually ran into Rob at like moonboarding the other day. Your oh yeah, my PT, your PT, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. I had seen your post, I think, but like maybe hadn't read the whole thing yet, and just talked to him, and that's when it really hit. Like I heard about the third time, and yeah, yeah, it's just got to be rough. Um, I was also so psyched to see that you were trying Magic Line. Yeah, 
Does that one feel important to you? Uh, I don't know if it feels important per se. It's just I've been climbing in Yosemite and I just like gravitate towards El Cap all the time. Right. But there's a few single pitch routes, especially as a dad these days. Sometimes going up on El Cap just takes too long and I do these trips with my family. So I was like, well, it's a, it's a climb that I can work on and like just do it for half the day and then spend the other half with my family. Mm. Um, but also it's beautiful and it's historic and... Um, and then Carlos Traversity was working on it too. So I wanted, you know, I had a great partner and so, yeah, I was, I was getting super psyched and it was going great actually. Really? Yeah. You're feeling close? Yeah, totally. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be there. Yeah. Um, for sure. but that's cool. I was actually, it made me really curious seeing that. I was like, I wonder when the last time Tommy tried to repeat a hard route was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I do it on boulder problems all the time, just okay. around here. Yeah. I spend, I mean... I guess I'm known for first ascents because that's what people talk about the most. But most of my climbing is just on routes that are previously established, I would say, generally. Even these days? Yeah, well, man, these days my climbing is like way less frequent than I would want. So, you know, I like I do a lot of like climbing indoors and then I go on like three trips a year or something. Okay. And then intermittent, you know, maybe like one day a week or less, I like manage to make it out to a bouldering you know, like a bouldering area or a crag somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, except the last six months, I haven't climbed up at all, basically. So, yeah. Yeah. Just trying to break new ground on the hangboard. hangboard yeah. Well, now that's, project. I mean, that's two weeks old, really. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just started maybe two and a half weeks. I just started, really. Damn. Yeah. Well, you're looking strong. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like working immediately. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I interviewed Lynn Hill the other day mm-hmm. and I want to ask you a question that I asked her because you two are similar in this way. Like I was just refreshing myself, preparing for her on all of her climbing achievements. And she has this insane resume, you know, from competition wins, like tons of international competitions to sport climbing. But then the thing that dwarfs everything is freeing the nose mm-hmm. and then freeing the nose in a day. And it's crazy that you two are still the only people that have freed the nose in a day, as far as I know. Is that true? Yeah, maybe. I think it's true. Yeah, I mean, it's been true. like almost 30 years. Yeah. I think that's just, a, I mean, people are freeing the nose almost every year now. Um, but I guess they haven't been doing it in a day. Yeah. It's weird. I think once you're able to do it, it's actually not that much harder to do it in a day. Because the crux is so Yeah, because it's so, so little of it is hard climbing. And okay. with modern speed climbing techniques, you can like get up there pretty quickly maybe maybe i'm maybe i don't know maybe i'm slightly wrong about that you know i've done enough speed climbing now that covering a lot of like 510 and 511 terrain i can do without that much energy expenditure right but maybe that's uncommon right right well it you're kind of similar like you have you also have this insanely broad resume from all the sport climbing you did when you were young and now you've done all these crazy link-ups in the mountains with alex and all these other things but you're still kind of known as like Mr. L Cap. Mm-hmm. You're the Donwall guy now. Mm-hmm. You know, like you totally. wrote a book about it. You have a movie about it. Yeah. Um, so the question I asked her that I want to ask you is like it seems like that's the thing, but when you look back at your own life of climbing, I'm curious what stands out for you and if there's anything that would surprise the rest of us that we wouldn't expect, like really significant accomplishments or things that you're proud of or things that were just really impactful or meaningful to you that Mm, I mean, El Cap stands out 
for sure. Like it, yeah, like by far. I, something about that wall is just like I feel like I, Lynn and myself hit it at the right time for free climbers. You know, like mm-hmm. at, at the right time in history. And so it's just so big and accessible, and um, it formats these crazy experiences. And so it overshadows all my other climbing by a lot. I would say. Um, there's a reason why it's so kind of like famous and it becomes such a big thing in everybody's minds. Um, but I mean, other, other than that, I don't know, like the, the time that I spent at the Fortress of Solitude back in the day on the Western Slope of Colorado was, um, maybe second in terms of crags that have sort of dominated my life. Um, I don't know if that would surprise people Mm. per se, um, well, that is actually really interesting to me because, you know, not knowing the whole backstory, not knowing the whole history, it kind of seems like you just raged through rifle and sent everything and then went up and did kryptonite and flex. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's not necessarily obvious to me that those were really impactful or significant, me- you know, memories or experiences for you. Like, I don't know, like, did were they hard? Like, did they take a ton of investment or did they just kind of happen because they were the next level and you'd been just cruising through all these other... Sport climbs at the time. I mean, I think it's basically true that I just did just rage through rifle. Like, I never projected anything more than, like, uh, you know, four or five days in rifle. So I just, like, had a lot of success there and built built all of my strength and kind of my ability to creatively climb at rifle. And then there was, like, another crag that was kind of bigger and slightly more spectacular and more remote and... um, but those routes did give me trouble for sure. Like I think when I did Flex Luther and Kryptonite, it was both. At, it was at a time in my life where I had been sport climbing a ton. I was a competition climber as well, but not very good at it. I would say, and I was also realizing that there that I was never going to be as strong as the best sport climbers out there. I sure didn't think so, and so it became my like my own little crag that probably people wouldn't go back to for a long time, which turns out is true. People didn't go back to Flex for a long time. Um, But it also was like, it almost took my sort of trad climbing adventure mentality to make that crag work because, you know, we we thought, we didn't climb in the night back then. We thought that we had to climb there in the middle of winter, which meant like post-holing through deep snow to get up there every day. Sometimes it would be zero degrees when we'd start hiking. And then the crag is so south-facing that it would be pleasant once you got up there. But the routes were always wet and you're knocking down icicles and you had to hike for an hour. And it was just like kind of like big, strenuous day. And, and developing the routes was very very adventurous because the rock kind of sucks <laughs> and we were doing it ground up so we were <laughs> you know i sort of learned how to aid climb up there we, wow we didn't have removable bolts back then we were just like using little hooks and stuff and i didn't want to put the bolts close together like a lot of times when people bolt out caves they just put a bolt every you know like as high up as they can reach you know i'm kind of old school i wanted the bolts to be like you know eight to 10 feet apart or whatever. So I was doing this like super hard aid climbing with like weird opposing hooks and I'd have a drill hanging from me and hooks would come flying, you know, popping off and I would take these whippers with this drill hanging on from me. And it was actually like really adventurous and kind of fun and it helped build my like lead head for trad climbing and going to El Cap. <laughs> Interestingly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I had a, I interviewed Maddie Hong about a year ago Mm -hmm. and we had a long conversation about the history of flex luther and of course we talked a lot about you and and you doing it and it was just fascinating because such a long period of time passed between you doing it and anyone going up there and really trying it 
there's nothing but speculation, you know, like Maddie rates at 15B and it's like, was it 15B or like, does, and he's, he told me, I'm, I'm curious, like what your version of this story is, because he told me that he reached out a couple of times and like asked you if you remembered any beta. And he's like, what about this section? You know, like, do you remember what you did here? And you were just kind of like, no, don't remember anything. And then after he sent it, you suddenly remembered more and maybe you were just like wanting to, him to have that adventurous experience. You're shaking your head. No, totally not. No, if you would have asked me, I, cer- I certainly would have shared everything I had with him. I was so okay. psyched that people were climbing on it. Oh, that's awesome. That's weird that he, that he said that. I, I wonder. I could be misremembering. I mean, maybe it's just like he reached out over Facebook and I never checked my Facebook pages or something, you know? <laughs> it's probably something like that. Like messages don't always make their way to me. I, I bet that was it. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, w- I was like, super psyched to share as much as I possibly could about that route. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have, um, I'm going to mix in some listener questions throughout this. And I got a question about Flex. This is from Rajiv. I'd love to hear if he's been back on Flex since Maddie sent and really just anything he remembers or new thoughts about that route. I wanted to go back there, honestly, after Maddie and, um, and Carla sent, because I was curious. I do, like, I can sit here and still remember the crux moves like this many years later. And I've, watched the video they do them totally different Mm. and um i'm curious if i got up there again if i would still think my way was better or if i would think their way was better if there'd be holds missing you know there's like a lot of questions there um the rock is not great so it's possible things broke but when i when i watch them climb on it i'm like i can see the holds that i used it looks like they're still there on the cruxes wow that's fascinating yeah so it's hard to know Huh. Although they did have a lot of problems at the top of the route and I never did. So it makes me wonder if maybe something broke up there. Okay. Yeah. I'm also curious. I mean, you mentioned a second ago that you were realizing at the time that you were never going to keep up with the best sport climbers at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to ask you a question about Chris Sharma. Yeah. Because you guys were contemporaries. You're like the first kids crushers, you know. And I remember you saying in another interview that you... Like, you know, it's this, you're teenagers, you're showing up on this competition scene. It's like the 90s and everyone else is like emaciated and starving themselves and super aggro. And you guys are like burning off all these adults, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember you saying that you thought you were winning because you just loved climbing more than they did. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask you, did Chris love climbing more than you did? Is that why he won all the time? I mean, Chris, hmm, that's a great question. I th- I think that the mentality of having fun with climbing was helpful. I think probably the main reason we were winning those competitions is because we were kind of pioneering that idea that being young, starting young, really helps a lot, which, you know, now it seems so obvious, you know, but back then it seemed like a bit of an anomaly. Chris... I don't know. No, I think Chris. That was actually, a joke, by the way. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but but it's, I think it's a. I think it's a valid question. Like I feel like Chris does love climbing sometimes more than just about anybody, you know. Mm. But then he also kind of goes through these periods where he struggles with motivation. So mm. he's a little bit more manic about it. I just kind of always, you know, love it a fair amount. You you seem like a grinder, you know. Like yeah. he he's just like go with the flow, man. And you're yeah. like you just keep beating your head totally but i do think it's interesting like do you think if you i mean flex whatever it was at the time was one of the hardest routes probably in the world yeah do you think you could have climbed 15b or 15c if you had stuck with like limestone sport climbing and just gone all in on that yeah probably maybe i don't know i'm not sure i mean uh i mean i went to say with chris and tried you know biography 
and it felt super hard, way harder than flex to me. Hmm. Um, you know, like the, the hardest routes that he was climbing at the time, I was like, I'm never going to be able to do those. But it was a different style. It was like the style where you're just like kind of hanging on your fingers. Mm. Whereas flex and climbing at rifle is really like this wrestling match. You're crawling. It's way less about finger strength. And I've never had great finger strength. And I've never had great like flow and mom like I've never been able to use my momentum like Chris could and like, you know, like precision and all these kind of things that make him such an incredible climber. I was never good in those ways. But I think I was pretty good at like this upside down geometric like crawling up the wall um sort of climbing and so that's probably why people go to flex now and they think it's so hard because mm. maybe modern hard routes have gone more in the direction of just you need great finger strength and less of the, i mean I, I don't know that like the standards are getting pushed in every way i think right but maybe now it's all of it yeah just like put together yeah but people have gotten really really good at the climbing that's more similar to gym climbing um and so in my and i've never been that great at gym climbing either so to me that kind of climbing seems so hard mm. whereas all the others like slab climbing or crack climbing or this kind of like geometric upside down rifle style climbing um those seem less hard comparatively mm. um yeah it is interesting to hear you say that like i'm realizing that they're actually is a surprising amount of similarity between like rifle or the fortress and lcap like it's it's very just i mean i don't know if that rings true with you but it's like that full body just kind of grovelly like wrestling match thing you know i remember watching the footage of jorg verhoven repeating the dihedral wall and i was like this is the craziest shit i've ever seen he's like <laughs> he's like pressing on smears and he's got both hands like above his head like pressing upwards into a roof you know and i'm just like how do you train for that how do you get strong yeah. at that it's so weird well interestingly when i did this route um called uh, magic mushroom on El Cap. It's like, it's got a thousand feet of dihedral climbing where there's like no holds. You're really just like, it's like 513 plus and 514 chimneying essentially. You're just like doing all this weird like stuff that to me seems a lot like World Cup bouldering nowadays. Like, huh. like not the coordination stuff so much, but like the slab problems, like the volume climbing. It seems like that. And it seems so, in so many ways, it seems like such an opposite venue from competition climbing but in other ways kind of similar so mm. yeah i like that stuff you mentioned in your injury instagram post that i read earlier i love this line you're like overcoming hard things is kind of what i do yeah what is the appeal for you with all the blue collar climbing like why do you think it is that that's your thing i think it's because i because it's just that it's something that I've realized over time that I can do, that I'm good at that. I'm, I'm willing to like suffer it out. Mm. I've never been naturally that gifted. And so I just, but I'm willing to stick with it for a long time. And so if you, I mean, that's knowing that you're good at something is sort of like makes it fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and going back to the Chris Sharma question and, you know, to, to now give you a compliment after poking fun at you with that joke, it's so awesome to me like you you and chris actually are like such a great uh example in my mind of just how great climbing is that you can be two of the best climbers in the world and have gone in complete opposite directions you know like comparing ladura dura and all these hard limestone sport routes that chris has done to the dawn wall and all these free routes on el cap that you've done and all these crazy link ups and stuff those are worlds apart yeah. and you're you're like at the top of the games you know it's I love that. Like, that's so cool that you can really 
find your own niche in climbing and kind of develop your climbing style around the things that that suit you and fit your strengths and things like that. You've really done that. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny that people, like I've had kids come up to me and be like, how do I become a professional climber at times? And they just, you know, you think it's about hangboarding or, um, you know, getting strong, winning competitions. And I'm like, no, you just got to find the niche that like barely anybody else wants to do. (laughs) (laughs) It's more of a creative endeavor than it is, or it's as creative as it is physical in Mm. my mind. Okay, I have a couple uh, listener questions about LCAP and... I really like this one. This is from Christoph. If you open the Yosemite guidebook and look at the LCAP section, probably 90% of the first free ascents listed are by Tommy. An absolutely incredible badass accomplishment. What about him made him uniquely suited to be on the cutting edge of big wall free climbing? Why is or was he so far ahead of everyone else? Because nobody realized it was cool yet, except for Lynn Hill and the Hubers. Like there was a, I mean, there was a period of time where I'd go to Yosemite every season and I would do another free route and I'd be like, this is the most awesome possible experience in climbing. Like the climbing up here is so beautiful and so striking and so hard. And like El Cap is just such a cool thing. Why is nobody else here? You know, I thought that for so long. Like, why is nobody else even into this? And for a long time, I thought that people just didn't didn't want to do the blue collar work that it takes because it is a total grind. Um, but now people are doing it and there's a lot of people there. You yeah. just had to put out the Donwall film and, <laughs> yeah. and make it seem cool. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how much of a uh, influence that had free. So not to, not too many people are free solo in El Cap, though, but a lot of people. Are <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it's funny. I talked to Lynn about this. You know, she mentioned that the free rider, the route, the free rider is like just as popular as the nose now because people want to like touch the cracks and like feel the holds and experience the exposure that Alex experienced on that solo. That's her theory. And I, th- I think that's interesting. It's also the most approachable free route on El Cap. But. Yeah, I wonder if I agree with that. I mean, I think that route's so popular because it still has, like it was always like, most people, aid climbers, would go and climb the nose. Or the nose had maybe like one-third more parties on it than the South A wall, generally. But now all the free climbers are on the South A wall too. So it's made, you know, when you combine the free climbers and, and the aid climbers, there's more people on the South than, mm. on, than on the nose. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. This is from Atlan. What's the next big objective that hasn't been done in Yosemite? I'm gonna use me. Um, it's hard to know, honestly. I mean, like big, like kind of headline grabbing objective. I mean, people are putting up roots all over the place in Yosemite. Like it's kind of filling in in ways. But there's certainly room for more Don Wall like climbs up there. I'm sure. Do you think there's potential for a harder one? Sure. Yeah, I'm sure there is. Just it's going to take a lot of time to find it, Mm. really. And it could be the kind of thing where it's just like a couple really hard pitches or something. Like that's how the aid climber aid climbs went. Like they kind of climbed all the easiest lines, and then they filled in all the other cracks around them. And the really hard aid routes were it's just because there was one pitch that lended itself perfectly to A5 or something like that. So I think that's probably what will happen on El Cap. There'll be routes where they follow a lot of existing routes or a lot of existing, um, yeah, like a lot of the line goes on existing routes and then they veer off for some, you know, 515 plus or something. (laughs) 
<laughs> I feel like that'll probably happen. That's cool. But it'll branch in all different ways. Like Leo Holding's vision of finding a pitch on El Cap where there was no gear, you know, like maybe, you know, like maybe no gear at all and you just have to have a good belay at the bottom and you could take a, you know, a 180 foot fall. Maybe that kind of stuff will become a thing because you can do that safe up there, you know? Oh my gosh. Somebody might be into that. That'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> you really have to understand the physics of taking big whippers to make that stuff doable but I think, it, I think it could happen yeah are you refer, are you referring to the prophet or is that just like an, a vision that he had that yeah i mean he talked leo about? holding was seeking that vision for a while and the prophet was supposed to be like a manifestation of that but in the end he decided to just do what everybody else does and go around and wrap down and work the <laughs> work the pitches i mean he was because he had almost died a bunch of times on it wow i'm um, actually interviewing him soon so i'll have to oh cool yeah <laughs> yeah that whole experience on the prophet like i was around for a lot of that or of his experience not just the prophet but also Secret Passage, like the route that Alex and I freed a few years ago that was basically the, the like he, he put up this route that just went up to El Cap Tower, like halfway up, and he didn't think there was any way to go to the top of the wall. He looked. I'm going to jump in real quick with a clarification. Tommy realized later that he got the names mixed up when talking about the Secret Passage. The climb that he's referring to right here is actually called the Passage to Freedom. That's the one that he and Alex freed in 2019. The Secret Passage is another free route on El Cap. That was first climbed by Nicolas Favrese and Sean Villanueva in October 2008. That's a route on the far right side of El Cap, a free route that goes at 13C. So yeah, he meant the Passage to Freedom. And you'll hear us figure all this out later in the episode, but I just wanted to clarify that right now. All right, back to the episode. Um, but it had this crazy, like he bolted this Alfa Romeo badge on the wall. It's like this crazy story where he... A what badge? Like a like a hood ornament for an Alfa Romeo car. Oh, <laughs> okay. Like so back then like chipping and the idea of bolting a hole to El Cap seemed like such an atrocity, right? But he just had, he was so cool and hip that he found a way to do it that people didn't totally like cancel him for it you know <laughs> he thought there was this blank section on on the route that just was impossible to climb through so he had this alfa romeo hood ornament that he was just traveling with for whatever reason and he bolted it to the side of el cap as a handhold as a handhold yeah you had to like dyno from these edges to grab this thing and then you had to dyno off of it to the next hold <laughs> and so i went to free this route i was like ah it, it was like heinous the move was so bad the alfa romeo was like super sharp it was like a terrible move. And then I realized that I could just climb the original aid aid route and it was no harder. <laughs> oh, that's, of, of course you did. That's, oh my gosh, it's still there? It's still, still there. there. Wow, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. I but, love that. Like, how else do you learn about these things except, except for talking to Tommy Caldwell? Like, yeah, totally. Yeah. But we, but then he got to El Cap Tower and he just like looked up and it was blank. And then Alex and I realized that you could just down climb the nose and, you know, just like do a bigger loop around to get to the, featured rock again and so that's how we made it happen and so that was like the the secret passage route that we did a few years ago gotcha do you think you have any more like new first ascent free el cap routes in you like is that something that you want to do anymore or did the don wall kind of close that chapter i mean yeah you did this one after the don wall so obviously not but i mean i think i'm addicted to the experience i'll go back it's more for me based on 
like having a good time with friends these days. Like if I have a friend who's super, super psyched to go there and has a vision or if I have a vision and I get a friend that's, that I'm super excited about. I mean, I think I will probably go back and do more of that. Like I tried to do, um, this route a few years ago called the heart route that Mason Earl and Brad Goldbright put up and Alex and I tried to just ground up it in a day and failed. And so I want to go back and finish that one off. There's been a handful of routes that have gone up, you know, that I haven't done yet. So I'd love to do those. And then I don't know, Yosemite is just a great place to go with my family. Like the bouldering's fun. The kids love it there. We have tons of friends there. Um, the weather's great. Like, I feel like it'll always be a big part of my life. What is your favorite time of year to go? Um, these days I like to go there like in mid October or early, early October. And it's pretty warm for a few months for, for like three weeks or so. And so I do more family style stuff. And then generally my family will go home in late or in like mid November or so. And then I'll have some time to just like really mission like mid November through December is like the sending conditions. Mm -hmm. And the valley kind of clears out from tourists for the most part of that time of year. So, it's, you know, it's pretty nice to be there. Do you do that every year? Most years. That's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Are there any other kind of staples for you and your family as far as like the yearly circuit? Yeah, we go to Fontainebleau every year. We oh, co really? COVID messed all this up. Sure, but we yeah. would go to Fontainebleau for a month every year in the spring. Oh, that's and cool. I, and I think we'll probably go next year. And it's fully a family thing. Like usually there's four to seven families that all kind of go together and we get a bunch of big houses. We rent a bunch of big houses um, and we all go climbing together. And that is also kind of crowded crag generally. But when you show up at a bouldering area with like 20 kids under the age of eight, everybody else leaves. You get it to yourself. <laughs> Pro tip. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Can I ask you a few questions about the Don Wall? Yeah. One thing that I'm most curious about, like this really stood out to me because I was following the journey at the time. I mean, I've watched, you know, I watched all the climbing films. I remember seeing the teasers and you were working on it and it was this thing and would he ever do it? And when you did do it, it took, you know, six years, who knows how many seasons, because there was, you know, a couple of years where you came in spring and fall. <clears throat> but when you did it, it just seemed like you were so totally dominant. It seemed like you just showed up totally ready and just crushed the Don Wall. Yeah. And then, you know, Kevin, it's like the most amazing underdog story ever that he was actually able to send the pitch 15 and, and do it. But I'm curious, like, why were you so dominant that year? Is it just because it took six years to get ready for a really good red point attempt? Or was there something different about the preparation leading into that year that you think made the difference? I mean, I think it, like, I loved the experience of being up there and piecing it together. And so that's what made it so I could go back year after year after year. And sometimes it got heavy and I gave up a couple of times, but I really loved being there working on it. Um, but at some point I was like, if I'm going to do this, I have to put everything into it. And so I really stepped up my training and kind of my excitement level for that last season in, in a way that I hadn't. I mean, maybe I had that for the first couple of seasons, but I hadn't, I hadn't pieced it together enough back then. I hadn't learned enough about it. But then, and then I kind of lulled, like I wouldn't train as hard in those middle years, but I would go and learn more each time. And then I got to a point where I was like, I, I've learned it all. I've done all the moves. I know this thing is possible. Like I can see it within the realm of my possibility. And so I got to go all in. And so that last year I went all in. What did that look like for you? 
I mean, it meant like trying to get scientific about my training. It meant, um, you know, I designed the TC Pro for that route. Like, oh, I for a, that route? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, like I had a great shoe. You know, <laughs> Kevin started climbing in it, even though he was sponsored by five. He like he like let his five ten sponsorship lapse <laughs> for the nice. final season of the Dodwall, which made a big difference actually. Um, wow! And um, yeah, I started like looking. Like, I, I've never been too scientific of a trainer, but there has been a few exceptions. And that year on the Donwall, like, I started, you know, really thinking about my diet. And skin was always such a huge issue. And so I'd always try and, like, find creams and stuff to put on there. And um, and one of my sponsors even developed a cream specifically for me, Climb On. For, oh, really? For that at one point. But then I also started to talk to her, um, Polly, was her name? And she's like, well, a lot of your skin health comes from the inside. So I changed my diet so that my fingertip skin would hold up differently. Can like, you give me, some, like, what were a couple changes you made? They were, like, a lot of leafy greens. I started eating tons of, like, salad and kale and, like, a lot of, like, lots of vegetables. And then um, taking fish oil supplements. Wow. So kale and fish oil for yeah, skin. For skin. Okay. Yeah. I never, yeah, I, I didn't think about nutrition in terms of what it would do to my skin. Until, right. Until that route, really. Right. And then I started like fingerboarding like a beast and really, like, it, it seemed for a while counterintuitive to train for a 19 day ascent of a big wall by like limit bouldering. But <laughs> <laughs> that's really what it took. Right. I mean, it, it makes sense because I've, I remember you talking about your training when you were, maybe this was like in dosage four or something when you did the double, when you did like, you freed the nose and free rider back to back, like 60 pitches free in 24 hours. Yeah. Totally insane. And you talked about your training leading up to that. And I just remember like you, you said like you would go bouldering and go cragging all day and like lift weights and then go for like a three hour bike ride. And it was just like this massive all day thing. Yeah. So it was, it sounds like it was shifting away from that and just trying to get stronger. Yeah. That's what I thought LCAP training was for a long time. I mean, it, and, it was for it, what you were doing. Yeah. For yeah. easier routes, that worked great. Yeah. But when it came down to trying to do like V12 boulder problems on holds that are like the size of a credit card, it was really just about bouldering. And especially when you're up there for 19 days, you're just, it's like a, it's like a bouldering trip, right? You're just like, you're sitting there in the portal edge in bed most of the time and then you get up for your like four hour session <laughs> and you try the moves and then you go back to bed so <laughs> right are there there's literally v12 boulder problems on the don wall yeah probably yeah wow. i think so which pitches pitches 14 and 15 yeah the most, traverse mostly pitches. 14 actually okay so we're, everybody thinks a pitch 15 is like the big daddy pitch because um, of kevin because of kevin but pitch right. 14 is even a little harder he was he was just botching it or yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah he was botching it exactly <laughs> okay another don wall question and, you, the, and then the movie <laughs> we we unexpectedly climbed pitch 14 in the movie and they didn't get it on film <laughs> so in the, in the film, they just combined 14 and 15 into one pitch. They like had some footage of us climbing on pitch 14, but they didn't have the actual send. So they just kind of like combined it into one pitch in the film. Sure. And so <laughs> movie, movie magic. <laughs> movie magic. I think, yeah. <laughs> Do you think it'll ever be climbed in a day? Sure. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I could see it. Yeah. It might be a long time. I, I could see it, but I could also imagine it not being climbed in a day. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. 
Someone would have to be eating a lot of kale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They'd have to. I mean, Adam Andre was an interesting one on the Donwall because he was just so strong, so much better than the climbing required that his skin didn't wear out in the same way. Like, mm. I think he was able to grab the holds less frequently, like grab them less aggressively, you know, be really steady on them. And he climbed a lot of days on in a way that we never could. And so if you can imagine somebody being like Adamandra, but way better, mm. which will I, happen. I can't, wh- but... Which will <laughs> probably happen someday. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Then, then you can start to imagine doing something like that in a day. That's fascinating. That does, it makes a lot of sense because if you compare an experienced climber with a beginner, like a beginner's skin gets shredded in like a day of bouldering, right? Because they're just sliding off of holds. They're like adjusting all the time. And um, so, yeah, just, you know, extrapolate that. And you've got Adamandra who's able to climb day after day on the Don Wall. Yeah. What did that feel like to see him do that? I felt mixed. Like I felt very excited for him. Like I, I, you know, it's always fun to, for me to have people go and try these routes that were a big part of your life. And so to have like the best, climber of like the modern day doing that was exciting i like still kind of wish you would have like had struggled a little more like, maybe, <laughs> like one more season maybe i mean i thought it was so shocking that i mean i knew he was a phenomenal climber obviously but he had barely tried climbed and, totally and it's like very heady tricky trad climbing it's not the kind of thing that you usually can do without a ton of experience i mean maybe i'm wrong i mean the check climbing that he grew up on is very heady and run out but in terms of like fiddling with the widgets, you know, and like copperheads and, you know, weird pins, I guess, I guess he probably just clipped all that stuff and just didn't think about it that much. Cause he, yeah, did, ignorance he didn't is even, bliss, maybe. Yeah, I didn't even have enough experience <laughs> to know that it just blows out of the rock if you actually <laughs> fall on it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, that's cool to hear you say that because I felt the same way. I mean, of course, he's like the best climber in the world. And I, I remember, I remember Alex, I think in your film, maybe he's just like, of course, he's going to do the fucking Donwall. It's only 14D. It's not even that hard. And I was just like, but it's so different. It's <laughs> it's slippery granite. Like, it's crazy compared to what he normally does. And yeah. I was just so amazed that he was able to adjust to it that quickly. Yeah. Turns out Alex was right. <laughs> <laughs> and we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Petzl. I have been using Petzl equipment for more than a decade, and today I want to talk about quick draws. Rock climbing is hard, but clipping shouldn't be. Whether you're on-siding, red pointing, or just warming up, the last thing you want to be struggling with is clipping your quick draws. That is why in 1991, Petzl introduced the Spirit Quick Draw. They set out to build the best clipping carabiner on the market, and 30 years later, you can still find Spirit Express Quick Draws hanging on the hardest routes in the world. And these are my favorite Quick Draws. They're the ones that I leave hanging on my own projects. Petzl makes some of the most clippable and durable carabiners on the market, and each Petzl carabiner design is tested to ensure that it can withstand 100,000 open and close cycles. That's a hell of a lot of clips. So whether you're climbing 510 or 514, you should check out the Spirit Express Quick Draws because you deserve a carabiner that's clippable, durable, and affordable. Check out Petzl's entire lineup of carabiners and quick draws at your local retailer or online at petzl.com. Again, shop for Petzl carabiners and quick draws at your local climbing shop or online at petzl.com. Experience the difference with Petzl. 
This episode is also brought to you by Chalk Cartel. I've tried a lot of different chalk in my 15 years of climbing, and this is my favorite. I love the texture. It's got the perfect amount of grit to it that makes it feel stickier than other chalks, and I swear to you it stays on my hands longer than other chalks that I've used. And if you're trying a long boulder problem or a pumpy sport climb or trad climb, not having to stop and chalk up as often can make all the difference. Head over to chalkcartel.com to check out their shop. They've got quarters. They've got kilos. They've even got a sample pack for $3. I call that the dime bag. So you can try it out before diving elbow deep into your chalk bucket. And if you're already hooked like me, you can buy a subscription and have amazing chalk automatically sent to your house every month or every two months or every three months. All of their packaging is eco-friendly, so keeping your chalk bag full has never been easier or lower impact. Again, that's chalkcartel.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next purchase and get ready to join the cartel. I will leave you with this friendly message from my three-year-old niece. And now back to the show. Um, okay, the TC Pro. I talked to Mikey Schaefer about shoes quite extensively on the podcast. Um <laughs> <laughs> and he has this philosophy of like he uses what he uses the least he can get away with, like the most comfortable shoe he can get away with, right? Like yeah. if he doesn't use a really aggressive or painful or stiff shoe unless he really needs it, and he always has a quiver. And uh, I want you to fact check this. I, th- I remember him saying that you were a one size TC Pro climber, like one size for everything. I was for a long time, yeah, but... That's I, crazy to me. Yeah, but I would, I would have my like pair that I just got out of the box and like had climbed a pitch in to break them in. And for me, that was like the perfect for sending moment is like one pitch and then like, you know, send really hard slab. Um, but then they would just get progressively more and more broken in. And so then I would, so I'd have that pair and then I'd have a pair that was like for the 513 plus pitches. And then I'd have a pair that was just for romping. And then I'd have a pair that was like for guiding my friends, you know, like, and it was all just, just more worn in versions of the old ones. Okay. Um, but my but feet you are size my, them all the same. Yeah, but my feet. I've had to upsize them now, especially with this injury. I try to put on shoes again. I'm like, I have to upsize all my shoes. Um, so I think I spent so much time wearing those, like four days a week, five days a week, that my feet just built all the right callus and they became <laughs> that shape. You know, I think I was able to. I think I was, well, plus they were built around my foot, right, a little bit right. in the first place. <laughs> helps, but, helps. Yeah, but I just my feet were. <clears throat> tuned to those shoes and that's what enabled me to do that and then in alpine you'd think i would take a bigger pair into the alpine but my feet change size a lot based on temperature right and when it's cold they're way smaller so i could just wear the same size even going to patagonia and put socks in them or whatever because my feet wow. are, you know almost numb and i would just wear a blown out pair how do you size them compared to like a bouldering or sports shoe uh same damn that's fascinating. Yeah. Like even when you did the double, when you freed those 60 pitches in a day, you're wearing like your sport climbing size TC, yeah, TC Pro. Yeah, I wore 38 and a half TC Pros for all those years and I wore 38 and a half solutions for sport climbing. Was foot pain ever a thing? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, now when I climb less frequently and my feet are less tuned, foot pain is more of an issue. Okay. 
Yeah. So you just got to beat them into submission. Well, you just got to climb a ton. I mean, I spent so much time in those shoes, you know, ridiculous amount of time. And that allowed me to not have the pain, but still have great performance. Okay. And so now I would probably have slightly less performance and bigger shoes. Gotcha. Until you just got used to them again. Yeah. Really dialed in. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Do you have any tips for toenail fungus? <laughs> uh, my toenail fungus is terrible. Mine too, dude. <laughs> Every single toe. I've like, I had a period of my life where I like, did an Epsom salt bath with tea tree oil in it yeah. every night and yeah. like scrubbed them and then put the stuff on like multiple times a day for like literally eight months straight Did and it, it still didn't go away. And I was yeah, like, it got better is, probably, right? It got a little better, but then like within two weeks of falling off the horse, it was just like, okay, yeah. it's bad again. And it's yeah. just, I'm like, I think I'm going to have to laser remove these things. Well, just, I don't know if you do that. Like, I, well, I think you just succumb. I want to get your thoughts on that. You actually. just succumb, like whatever. Deal. It is what it is. Yeah. Fuck. That's that's kind of that's kind of my approach. I mean, my I haven't put a climbing shoe on my left foot for six months and it's gone. Like the toe fungus is completely gone. Oh wow, really? Uh, but my right foot still has it. Okay. Because I've been I haven't I haven't even really put a tennis shoe on my left foot that much in eight months. Gotcha. Or in six months. So. Just like wearing sandals around the house and stuff. Yeah, and a cast, and you know, just <laughs> just not putting them in gnarly, gnarly. <laughs> athletic shoes <laughs> <laughs> so we're screwed either quit climbing yeah. or just deal yeah, with the maybe. toenail fungus. i mean i have a friend who removed all his from here in estes actually who laser removed all his toenails and he really wishes he didn't do it really yeah he's like he's a I climber if i drop things on my feet it really hurts if i you know if i i think his climbing shoes are a little more painful now like your toenails mm. do add structure in a way that's good for climbing i think okay so just be okay with having terrible feet i guess all right. And I mean, I, and I think the Epsom salt, I mean, I did take the Lamisil at one point. Oh, the like oral stuff? The yeah, the oral, oral stuff. And that worked temporarily. You know, I you take, you have to wait for your toenails to grow out. So it takes like, uh, you know, two months or whatever. And then it's clear. And, and I did it um, when I was on a trip to Spain in like my early 20s or late teens or something. I took it. And I, we didn't shower for five weeks. We were just like living. I had just had a bivy sack on that trip. I didn't even have a tent. And uh, we were just like sleeping in ditches on the side of the road. And there's <laughs> five of us in a tiny little rental car. It was like real, real old school style road tripping with zero money. How old were you? And I was, I was maybe like 18 to 21, somewhere, somewhere in there. Okay. And, uh, and everybody smelled so bad except for me. It's antifungal. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, I had no BO without showering for five weeks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Lamisil is a shower substitute. Yeah. Um, did it mess with you at all? I'm like, I've thought about taking that stuff, but I'm afraid. Like, I don't, it, I mean, it's like, that can't be great for you. Like, yeah. I, I don't love taking antibiotics, you know? I'm just afraid of like what that does to your gut health and things. Yeah, I, it didn't mess with me that I know of. I, I mean, I think that now I don't, I don't take it often because I'm worried about the same things. I've only taken it that one time because I've heard how it damages your liver and everything. Mm. And I, I think when I took it when I was young, I didn't know that. The doctor just told me I should do it. And so I did it. Right. Um... So I think it's best not to do it all the time, but it does work. Okay. If you care more about your fingers than you're about your toenails than your liver, I guess. <laughs> I don't. I'll just keep hiding them <laughs> in socks. It's, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. It is. Or what it flaunt is. them. Actually, I think it's flaunt like them? 
I think it's a point of pride in a way. Like runners feel this way if they've got black toenails. <laughs> they're like a real deal runner. Yeah. Like an ultra runner and climbers yeah. can be the way. I feel like it gives you street cred. Okay. You've put those feet through some adventures. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to wear them like a badge of honor. <laughs> um, okay. Going back to the overcoming hard things thing. I wanted to ask you this as well. What have been some great things that have happened in your life or that you have achieved that have felt easy? Anything? Uh, that I've achieved that have felt easy. Um, like, I feel like I've professionally gotten to a pretty incredible place that I never thought of I, I would have been climbing in a way that I didn't ever strive for like i just mm. went climbing and i try and be a responsible human being and the professional side has worked out without me specifically trying to make it work out that's awesome yeah that's really cool to hear man i mean you yeah. deserve it yeah i suppose <laughs> <laughs> but i'm but I, I mean i can like raise a family and like we have a great house and mm. all these things and it just happened through rock climbing that seems like mm. way too good to be true you know i always figured when i was young that i would have to like get a real job at some point and i still have it well you work you work i do I mean, yeah no i work i work super hard and actually it feels more like a real job now mm -hmm. than it and i always worked really hard at climbing too but like working hard and like having a job were two different things in my mind right you know? right, right yeah yeah totally i mean how i'm curious though how much of that was was hunkering down and like writing the book or doing all the, I mean, you did so much press stuff and traveling for the movie and for the book when they came yeah, out. Yeah, the, the press stuff did feel like work, I would say. Like I never, I don't like, I've never been super comfortable with being like a public person. So having to go and be a public person feels like work. But writing the book was a little bit like climbing for me. Like I did it for a little bit of an adventure and because I felt like it would, make me better you know climbing and you know climbing is such a sport of trying to better yourself make yourself stronger you know um in a certain way and writing the book felt like the same thing for mm. me yeah and so i think i would have probably taken that journey whether it was a professional decision or not okay i want to ask you about that i i um i have some questions about your dad mm -hmm. and about um parenting because something that I loved your book, by the way, Thank you. I really loved it. And I appreciated how vulnerable and honest it was. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you talk about this a little bit since, like, it sounds like that actually created difficulties or a challenge or um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, like put a separation between you and your dad, at least for a while when that book came out and you would talk so publicly about some of that. But mm -hmm. You know, I've just, I'm just thinking about that. Like you've talked about how your dad was this larger than life character and how he wanted to toughen you up as a kid. And that, I mean, like we can all see now that that definitely played a role in making you Tommy Caldwell, mm -hmm. right? Like it worked, like he toughened you up and now you're yeah. a total badass. It certainly worked, yeah. Um, I'm curious, how did the process of writing the book and reflecting on your childhood and upbringing, how's that informed how you raise your kids? I think it really made me appreciate my dad's approach and also be more in awe of his ability to like build grit. Like he didn't call it grit at the time, but that's what he was doing. And he was so good at it and he still is so good at it. Like he's, he takes people climbing and he's a, you know, he's a guide and a coach these days, mostly a guide. Um, and he's able to take people from the Midwest out into the mountains and like 
beat the hell out of them and have him come back and be like, that was the most incredible experience. There's Still? Not, yeah, there's not How many people that can do that. He's 72. Uh, That's awesome. 72. He still does it, yeah. Um, and I and I don't know. He's, he's got like this real superpower in that way um, that, I, that I don't have. Um, in terms of our relationship, though, the book was kind of hard on it, honestly, because he's of that generation where you you don't talk about you're not vulnerable there's mm. nothing vulnerable and when you write a book that encompasses your whole life and like the most important relationships and you not only expose your feelings about them you expose other people's vulnerabilities like through your lens that's not always easy for those people and that was especially hard for my dad mm. even though anybody else who reads that book they're like man your dad was awesome he reads that right book. he reads that book and he's like hates it of course. Yeah. 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 Did that feel like a hard decision for you at the time to be that transparent with it? Because like I think about this with this show, my parents listen to this show mm -hmm. and I'm not holding anything back. Like I don't have anything critical or negative to say about my parents. But if I were to like really deeply reflect on my childhood and, the up, and my upbringing and the way that they raised me and how that affected me, I'd have to think really hard about what I wanted to share knowing that they were going to listen, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think I've read enough, um, like, memoirs to know that you have to write in that way. Like, you have to you have to really be introspective and expose a full picture of, like, your, your life and the lives of those around you for it to have any substance to it. Mm. So I was thinking about that a lot when writing my book. Plus, it was just my own personal, like, therapy experiment. Writing the mm. book was like, I'm going to finally deep think deeply about these things that I never really thought that deeply about. Wow. Um, and I just knew that for me to actually succeed in that process and for it to be a good book, I had to do that. So on the other hand, I tried to think as little as possible about what people like my dad would think of it afterwards. Because mm. I think that's another thing that can make a book bad is you have too, like too many voices in your head of other mm. people. You have to strike that right balance. Right. What does your relationship with your dad look like now? I mean, it kind of blew up after the book. It's funny. I wrote the whole book and then, um, and I didn't let him read it. And then I gave it to him and went to France for a month on a trip to Fontainebleau and he read it. And I almost thought I was going to have to come home because he was so upset. Oh. And then uh, I didn't come home. And then he had kind of like cooled down a little bit by the time I got home. Um, and then we had like some really good conversations where it seemed like it's, it seemed like in my mind, you know, he's a private, private person. He's like old school. And I thought sometimes to really become close to somebody again, like I was close in a different way when I was young, we did lots of stuff together, but we didn't talk about personal stuff. Mm. And so I was like, maybe if I want to get to that point with my dad, where you do talk about personal stuff, you kind of have to throw a bomb in there. And maybe my book is like, you blow it up and then you put, put back the pieces in a different yeah, way. Yeah. And I thought the book, I thought it was going to do that, but I don't know. I think my dad just came around to seeing how much people liked the book and seeing how many people complimented him because of the book mm. that he was like, maybe my perception of this thing is slightly off. Mm. And so now he brings books for me to sign for his friends and stuff. Oh, wow. <laughs> which is pretty interesting, but we don't, yeah. we still don't talk about personal things that much. Right. And, um, I would say we've gotten progressively 
more distant um, just because I don't know, like he's so he like, I, yeah, I don't know. I feel like he's just like, you grow apart, I guess. He's like, so um, right ring in my mind, kind of conspiracy theorist these days mm-hmm. that that makes it a little bit harder too. And so it's like to have gotcha. somebody that you're really close, but you have one part of your life that you see so differently. In some ways I'm like, I want to work that out and figure it out because it'll help, you know, help create unity, not only on my own life, but just like in the political divides these days. Right. Um, but it hasn't really happened yet. We've tried, but it hasn't, hasn't worked. Yeah. That's, yeah, that is so hard these days. It's so, it's like hard to even imagine. I mean, I had this great conversation with Carol Simpson. She's 77 mm-hmm. on the podcast and um, she's a climber, yoga teacher. She's awesome. And she's been, you know, she has this life partner who she's been with for more than 30 years and she's really liberal and he's really conservative mm-hmm. and they make it work. And I was fascinated by that. And we had this great conversation about it, but I just have, I still have this feeling like, I just don't think that could happen today. Yeah. I mean, I do talk to my dad a little bit about like conservative values um, in a way that I totally understand. And um, I have some of those things in my mind. Like, I don't like people telling me what to do. I don't like the (laughs) idea of like big government, you know, being a Yosemite climber in a way is like, Mm. in some ways it's very, it's like, it's like bucking the man, you know, which is a pretty conservative value. And in some days, like you run from the police all the time. (laughs) Right. Um, and I don't like too much clutter, you know, just in life. So I ha- I'm like kind of conservative in those ways, but in like all the environmental ways and kind of the conspiracy theories ways of like, we just don't see eye to eye and I don't know how to get by that really. Mm. You just, you just, I mean, I guess you just come, it doesn't mean that we can't hang out though. We still right. get together and we hang out and we just don't talk about those things and that's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going back to the grit thing, how do you think about that with your own kids? You said you don't really have that. Do you feel, is any part of you knowing what you've accomplished, feel like your kids are going to miss out on that at all? Is that even on your mind? I mean, I think the way that my dad approached it with myself and my sister worked really well for me, but it was um, it was uncertain that it was going to work well because mm-hmm. he tried the same thing with my sister and she totally rebelled and went the other direction. <laughs> okay. And so with my kids, I'm like, I don't want that. You know, I like want them to sort of like find this love of climbing in a way that uh, well I mean I, I don't know I try to take them on adventures I'm not sure how much of it like how well it worked with me was my I think most of it was my dad he really convinced me that suffering in the mountains was like this great thing I can't do that with my kids though they don't like to suffer in the mountains mm. that much but I do take them out all the time and and they're getting like kind of slowly good at it mm. um, and so I'm yeah I'm taking like the good pieces that I can from my parents and trying to pass them on. And it's like kind of working. <laughs> I um I love that little clip of Fitz doing the mantle. Yeah. In the film. I mean, that's just, I mean, just that little like one minute thing tells me so much about you and, and Becca's parents, you know? Yeah. Just, that's more Becca than me too. That's like, cool. Yeah. Interestingly, in, in our relationship, um, Becca's like the way more, like I call her tiger mom. She's like the one who's, always really, really trying to get the kids to suffer more than oh. me, <laughs> interestingly. Okay. Um, hmm. And she's seen, and she's, and she stresses a little bit more about it too. Like I remember we, we, uh, we signed Fitz up when he was five years old or something for team ABC camp in Boulder, the kids climbing camp. That's like the Olympic Olympian factory, you know, that place. <laughs> yeah. And, um, 
I was really pleasantly surprised that for young kids that were five years old, it, it just seemed like this very fun environment. Mm. It didn't seem about like about like building strong kids at that point. It was just about growing this love of climbing. And I was like, oh, this is so great. And so he took a class there. And then at the end of the class, it was like a, you know, it was like every Monday for two and a half months or something like that. So he did that whole session. And at the end of the session, we go in there one day and they like hand us this report card essentially and they're like oh you know he was he was a team player and he had, he had a ton of fun but his like upper body strength isn't really that good and he could like work on his footwork and they had, kind of had like these technical critiques of him and they're like and so if, if he wants to do another session maybe we'll just have him do the same class again and i walked out and i'm like oh that's so cool that's so cool that they informed us and they kept us informed and then becca looked at me and she's like he just failed the class. <laughs> He's gonna have to repeat, repeat for his grade again. She was like a little bit distraught about the whole thing, you know. <laughs> Maybe he's just a late bloomer, you know. He's gonna get extra technique practice, and he'll be he'll be awesome. Or who knows, like. Maybe he'll find something completely different that he loves. Yeah, I mean, he. I, I really love discovering who my kids are and not trying to make them who I want them mm, to be. That's cool. And Fitz is incredibly intellectual. He reads all the time. He, How like, old is he? He absorbs stories in this incredible way. Um, he's nine now. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so he's like a voracious reader and really into history and science. He's like a bookish kid in a way that I, I find really fun. That's awesome. Yeah. This is a question from Eli, and I, I kind of cracked up seeing this because Eli asks this question every time I have a dad on the show because uh -huh. he's a dad. Yeah. Um, he asks, what advice does Tommy have for us family life climbers who are wrangling kids at the crag and in the mountains? Any tips, any advice? Make sure you've got a really good life partner. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. <laughs> um, yeah, and... I mean, it sounds a little cliche, but when I bring my kids to the cliff, there was a period of time when I really wanted the climbing experience to be not impacted that much. Like I wanted to be able to send my project and have long days at the crag. And at some point I kind of let go of that for mm. the most part. And if it if it's just me and, and, and the kids, if it's just our family unit, it really does become mostly about the kids when I'm there. And so I have to segment my time between... Um, my sending time, my wife's sending time, and then the kid time. And mm. when the kids are there, it always has to be their time. And so that takes teaming up with other families a lot. Um, we we go to the crag with other families or friends that like kids that, you know, we go as a pretty big group. Mm. And that always makes it way better. Yeah, and it clears out the forest of Fontainebleau. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. And the kids have so much more fun if they've got tons of friends around. And they're actually more likely to climb in that scenario we found. Mm, that makes sense. Um, That's cool. Peer pressure is like very useful in, mm. in climbing for kids. There you go, Eli. So. Find some other little kid climbers. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. I this, is, uh, this next question, this is from a listener. This is from John. And it's probably the most beautiful question I've ever gotten from a listener <laughs> for the podcast. It goes back to that vulnerability thing. So it's a little bit long. I'll, I'll read the whole thing here. John writes, <clears throat> let's be honest. We don't love Tommy Caldwell because he's such an amazing climber. We just respect him for that. But we all love Tommy Caldwell because of the way he showed the world his healing journey through trauma, violence, guilt, heartbreak, and physical pain. So beautifully that an entire generation was first exposed to rock climbing in the context of resilience, healing, narrative change, and waiting on a friend. 
I'm curious if that cinematic exposure of his story made the healing journey more challenging, painful, or numbing, or if it felt liberating. Who taught him vulnerability? Is he still receiving the strength to be vulnerable these days? Wow, interesting. I mean, that's very, like, complimentary, <laughs> first of all, <laughs> blushing slightly. Um, I don't know who taught me vulnerability. I think I came by it naturally, honestly. My mom is like a... My dad's this crazy, like, hard but big personality. My mom is, like, almost the opposite of that in some ways, which seems vulnerable. And so I always... I think my vulnerability came from probably a place of feeling meek in a lot of ways, like socially mm. in my life, and then and then progressively becoming okay with that. Um, so I don't know if that I don't know if that's really I got taught. And in some ways, writing my book taught me that though. Like Kelly Cordes, weirdly, who was like hugely he was he was like I, he was a collaborator on my book i wrote you know I, I worked like i when i wrote my book i did it because um i had written all these magazine articles like 20 25 different magazine articles for climbing rock and ice for alpinist and i kind of learned how to write through working with the editors and them kind of mentoring me and so i wanted to write my book in the same way so i hired kelly cordis to walk that process with oh, me and cool. he was and he was always um pushing me in that direction with writing but in the Donwall film, like that, I didn't write that, obviously. You know, that's just, they just filmed it and that's what they made. <laughs> and so there must have been that like vulnerability aspect just like built within who I am as a person. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting question. I don't think I was taught it. I think it just was there, I guess. Has it gotten easier over time? Yeah, totally. I feel that yeah. way too. Yeah, for sure. This is like the podcast is such a unique place. Like I'm, I'm sure the people listening to this know me. I, I make, I make this comment actually. Like when I meet listeners, mm -hmm. <clears throat> sometimes I do Zoom calls and just like get to know people that listen. You know, if they, if they write like a really thoughtful email or something, and I'm like you probably know me better than my sisters do, right? You know, or better than some of my closest friends who haven't listened to the show. And yeah. but it, it has gotten easier over time. At first, it's like, what are people gonna? think and judgment and things like that and um it's one of my it's one of my favorite things actually just to like really be honest about the process and and not hold that stuff back until there's like an achievement to show for it you know yeah i mean as you say that i think that it comes from a place of like valuing like conversation and relationships mm -hmm. Right, like if you just value cramping hard, which was a big part of my life, <laughs> then vulnerability doesn't need to be part of that, you know? And so you're not really going to develop that part of who you are. Yeah. But when you're a climber and like, especially an adventure climber, like somebody who goes on big trips with people or maybe not even adventurous trips, but like long sport climbing trips or whatever, you're with these people in like this very intense way, oftentimes doing something scary. And so you build like these super strong relationships, which inevitably venture into the realm of vulnerability at some point. Mm -hmm. And so you develop that like part of you. Do you enjoy that on expeditions and trips? Like, do you enjoy learning about people, having those deeper conversations? Yeah, it's kind of why I go on trips in That's a lot cool. of ways nowadays. Because yeah. you're interesting to me. I'm, I mean, in a way, I think I relate to you. Like I, I say that I'm introverted. I don't know to what extent that's true. I think there's a spectrum and I'm 
you being know. a pod introverted podcaster is a little bit of an oxymoron totally yeah. but like I, I i mean the reality is i live in a van and spend like 90 percent of my time by myself and it takes way longer to like sit in front of the computer and edit than it does to do this yeah you know um but yeah. but you're kind of the same way like you you seem introverted and you seem like a pretty private guy mm -hmm. but when you do this like you're so easy to talk to and yeah i think i value like personal relationships between like two or three or four people you gotcha. know like yeah. i'm not the kind of guy who like enjoys going to like large social gatherings and i'm never like the the center of the party mm. although my wife is for sure so <laughs> i definitely uh have done my best to develop that a little bit more yeah it's the opposites attract thing huh yeah um okay i have a question about your injury or about injuries in general this is from tj TJ writes, how does Tommy keep the psych through serious injuries? I heard he's going through a tragic string of unfortunate events right now. Are there certain climbing goals that keeps the light on at the end of the tunnel? And then TJ writes, I have friends that could use some Tommy injury wisdom these days. I mean, weirdly, I haven't been injured for 20 plus years. Like my, I cut off my finger. That was my last injury. Um, so I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that question. I mean, this Achilles has been a real one. And I'm, I think I've, I really love what I do. I love being outside. I love everything about climbing and what's involved in that. Um, and so just having that love of it makes it so you find a way to persevere through injuries eventually. But with this injury, honestly, like there was a period of time uh, a few months ago where I was like, ah, I'm okay not climbing. Like my psych wasn't mm. there. Um, and I was okay with that too, because I mm. kind of knew it would return at some point, which it has, even though like when I re-injured myself again and, and I was like, this injury is going to take a while immediately. I was like very motivated again. Um, but when I like saw it as like this kind of like six month thing, I was like, oh, it's probably good for me to not focus so hard on it for a while. Mm. But you're kind of thinking that you would eventually go back to Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Right. I mean, cause <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's something I'm curious about. Like this, this seems scary. I mean, yeah. the you know three tears. Actually, will you just tell me a little bit more about what happened with the Achilles? Yeah, so I fell on Magic Line. Like I was climbing on Magic Line with Carlo, and the crux of that route is like 30 feet up or something. And I had like gotten through the crux, and the gear is kind of weird, and um, and it's hard to place in the crux. So I just had decided not to place as much and. And I, I fell with like my last piece, like a few feet below my feet from like 30 feet up. So there's not a whole lot of extra, like you can't make it that dynamic. Right. And so he, Carlo had to keep it pretty tight. So when I fell, I popped straight back and I just swung in super hard mm. and sideways. So it just all hit on one foot. Like I bet my, I bet my toes almost touched my shin bone kind of thing. And Ooh. so that's why, that's why it, it ripped. So that was the original injury. And when was that? That was in like early February, I think. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then I went, you know, I, I had surgery like that week and they just did really minimal surgery. They just put like one stitch in there essentially and just sewed it back together because it was totally severed. Like, mm. like they had to get it, the ends back together. You can just like cast yourself with your toe pointed. And, um, as long as the ends of the tendons are close together, that's fine. Um, a lot of times it will heal that way. But mine were so far apart that they needed to like pull them back together surgically. Um, so I did that and then and then I th and then I had an orthopedic, you know, I was in a hard cast for a little bit and then I went into an orthopedic boot and like walking started to feel totally fine. I was even like hiking a little bit 
And I was under the perception, and I wasn't able to even activate my calf muscle. Like you're just my, I think this is a common thing with this injury. Like your body doesn't allow you to do that. So mm. it, like in the boot, I just relied on the structure of the boot for everything. And so I convinced myself that climbing was, at least top roping was totally fine. Because if I can't even like use my calf, how am I going to injure my Achilles again? But then I started like climbing uh, in my orthopedic boot and I, and then I resold it with climbing shoe rubber. <laughs> And this was five weeks out from my original rupture, I think. And I was like, kind of climbing okay. You know, I was like, oh, in my mind, I was like, oh, it's kind of like wearing a crampon. I'm going to get better at mixed climbing from this. And I was like working my way up through the grades. I, I got on a 513. I was like, I'm going to climb 513 in my orthopedic boot. And I think the psych overrode that like self-governor mm. <laughs> in some way. And I was like through this big high back step and just flexed in a way that like ripped it again. Oh. And so the next time, and that time I didn't have surgery. It didn't rip it 100% that time. I did, we just decided to do the thing where we cast my foot with my toe pointed. And so I went back into a hard cast for six weeks. So longer this time in hard cast, no weight bearing for six weeks. And then went into the back into the boot and they kind of have this whole, this whole protocol that lasts like a couple months where you progressively weight it more and more and you do harder and harder exercises and you get the flexibility back and... Um, and I feel like I was nearing, it seemed like I was nearing the end of that. Like I had strength again. I was able to do five one footed toe raises and it was all going pretty fast. It was swelling a lot for whatever reason, but I think Rob too, you know, Rob, um, my yeah. PT, he was like pretty excited to get me back as soon as possible as I, as I, as I was. And it seemed all great, but then we just pushed it too hard in PT one day mm. and snapped it again. Um, so now back this time they did like a real deal surgery. They like added a cadaver, like some collagen from a cadaver. They put bolts in my heel. They like sewed halfway up my calf. It's like they totally rebuilt the whole thing. Wow. And so hopefully that'll make it more robust. I'm sure I'm going to have like the world's thickest Achilles after all this is done, <laughs> but everybody says it's going to, it's going to work. But. Maybe you'll be able to stand on like a new level of diamond. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the strength is, is a thing that's hard to get back. So I'll have mm. to do a lot of, a lot of PT for that. Um, but I'm still like not, I mean, I'm a little concerned that it could just rupture again. And I did meet a football player recently who had, uh, his body actually rejected the cadaver part they put in him Mm. and he lost his Achilles altogether and ended his career. So there's always like that little bit of me that's like, oh, stuff can go wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it seems like it's, you know, it's stressful at times, but it's okay. I think it's going to be fine. Glad to hear it, man. Thanks for sharing all that. Yeah. That makes me want to ask, do you have things in climbing that feel undone for you? I mean, obviously you're a lifer climber, you still love it, but, you know, assuming that you bounce back and get back to 100% after this injury. I mean, I sort of abandoned big, more alpine type expeditions when I had kids. Um, like I always wanted to climb Saratori. I like really wanted to go try and do some big walls in Baffin Island and Greenland. I've kind of always had this romantic idea of doing a whole summer where I sail actually between Greenland and Baffin Island and do that, that trip up there. And so, um, I'd be really excited to do that stuff. But right now with the age that my kids are and the fact that I can't take them on those kind of trips, it's, I'm not willing to do it. Like, I don't want to be gone that long. And the more alpine, like the snowy stuff, I'm 
I don't know if I'll ever go back to it or not because I'm not interested in 8,000 meter peaks per se. So I'm interested in big wall climbing and big wall climbing in snowy conditions just as dangerous. And mm. so I, you know, I think I take to that. I'm good at suffering. I like the cold. I like that environment. I'm, you know, pretty brave in that world. Like that, that it's almost like the easy way to excel <laughs> is through <laughs> alpine climbing for me Yeah, in a weird way, but it feels a little bit selfish. So mm. um, I think I will probably... What I would like to do if my body will let me is do like more mega endurance link up type climbing and and just like do the boulder problems with sport climbs around here that I could never <laughs> do. Go back to Spain. Like I would love, Sweet. you know, like I selfishly do want Fitz and Ingrid to get excited about climbing so I can relive that whole like sport climbing bouldering thing again with them. Um, so we'll see. Do you have boulder projects around here? Bouldering projects? Oh yeah, tons. Tons. Yeah. Any that are like at the top of your list or so there's a there's a boulder problem called memory. I've this came into my mind weirdly. Um memory is parallax that's like a 10 minute walk from my parents' house. Is that V14? Yeah. Okay. It's a V14 that Dean Potter worked on a bunch back in the day. It's 10 minutes from my parents' house. I bolted some sport routes like just a few hundred feet away from it when I was a little kid. <laughs> it's just right there and it's amazing. And so I've always been like, I want to do that. And I've gone there and worked on it. I've just never been able to do it. And so part of me is like, if I could do that one as an old man, like I am now, <laughs> I'd feel pretty proud of myself. Um, yeah. So, and it's just in, you know, it's in, in town, basically in Estes. It's really easy to get to. Um yeah, and I love I love Chaos Canyon. Like when they open that place up again, I you know some of my favorite summers are just running up there all the time and and having these bouldering days up there. Yeah, um, yeah. So who knows? I last summer was my first time here, and I basically spent two months going up there. Mm -hmm. It was so fun. I love. Yeah, it. you get so fit. I know. And, and it's like overall fit. It's kind of my favorite, my personal favorite type of adventure because unlike you, I really don't like the suffer fest sort of thing and um, can only kind of rally to do something like that, like maybe once a year, you know. Yeah. Um, but the alpine bouldering is kind of perfect where you feel kind of badass, like you feel like you did something cool and you just feel like a really capable animal, you know, like yeah. you're up in the mountains and covering lots of ground. But then it's like what I love, which is just working hard moves and. Yeah. Bouldering. Yeah, you start like moving over the talus really efficiently and you're like timing your approach and your <laughs> descent all the time. And mm -hmm. it's gotten harder with the timed entry thing for sure. Yeah. In the park, that's made it tricky, but um, nighttime climbing is now a thing. And so mm -hmm. that helps. Yeah. So you're 44, you've got a family and kids. Let's say you recover fully from this injury. Do you think you're still improving? Are you still getting better? I think I'm changing. Like my like my ability to get stronger and get more powerful is definitely diminished. Like it, you know, I used to just get stronger by being a human on planet Earth, and it would just <laughs> happen, you know. <laughs> and that doesn't happen anymore. I have to be yeah. a little bit more strategic and methodical about it. Um, but I definitely have gotten way better at suffering, and I've gotten way more knowledgeable, and um, so. I don't really anticipate to like find a, another Don wall, but you never know. I'm open to it. Um, and right now I'm sort of focused more on 
local climbing and going places I can bring my kids, but at some point they're probably not going to want to hang out with me as much as they do right now. And so <laughs> I am pretty excited to do big, big international expeditions again. That comment about the Donwell, do you have any lines on El Cap that you're just like curious about or that you've scoped out or anything like, ooh, that one could be next level. I mean, I can go to El Cap and like start looking through the spotting scope and, you know, and like come up with ideas, but not as, I mean, the Donwall was like that part of El Cap. It was like, so it was like the part that hadn't been climbed, you know? And then the whole time we we're climbing on the Donwall, we were looking over left at these like crazy looking overhanging cracks. And I was like, that's the next one. Mm. And so that was, that's what was, um, the, 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 um, profit. And so mm. it, we did that one too. And so there's nothing like that in my mind right now where there's just some obvious thing where I'm like, that is going to be mm. the next thing. Everything gets a little bit more contrived after this in my mind. Yeah. I mean, there is a whole swath of rock, like to the right of the NA wall. That's super steep and really just the realm of hard aid climbs like between the NA wall and um, the Zodiac. And I feel like there's, you know, there's definitely some room for some really hard routes. Or the like king line on El Cap would be to climb the Don Wall. Like the Don Wall ends at Wino Tower and then it's like 13A to the top. It like, kind of goes off to the side, off to the right, and it gets way easier at that point. But then the um the profit actually or not the profit, um why am I what am why am I uh Oh the you mentioned it earlier, didn't you? Yeah. Anyways, the secret the, passage. The secret passage, yeah. No, not the secret passage. Did I did I use the wrong name earlier? I'm <laughs> I'm mixing up all the Leo holding roots. The secret passage is is not um we're gonna have to edit this out, but the secret passage is over on the right side. That's a um Sean and Nico route, right okay. next to the prophet. And then the one that I'm talking about is the one with the Alpha Romeo badge is oh, why is my brain not working right now? I'm gonna see if I can Google it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. Where's the name? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cares what the name is. Damn. It's a paid for thing. It won't let me see it. <laughs> I don't know what the name is. Paywall. Climbing magazine. You've done so many free routes. I on can't even remember the name of them. <laughs> It's like actually true. Yeah. I'll, I'll give this one more minute and then we'll just move on. Yeah. New Dawn? Nope. Passage of Freedom? Passage of Freedom. Passage of Freedom. There we go. Passage yeah. to Freedom. Yeah, Passage to Freedom. That's the one. So okay. anyways, the king line would be to climb the Dawn Wall to Passage of Freedom. And Passage to Freedom is the one with the badge. The yeah, Alpha but you skip that part. Got it. With the badge, but the... The Wino Tower, which is where the Donwall ends, is really where all the best climbing on Passage to Freedom starts. Okay. So it's a little contrived because you're just linking up two things, but it would it would create a route that was basically, you know, upper end 513 to 514 from bottom to top. It would be the most stacked thing ever. So That's badass. What, do you have any interest? Would you ever go back? Oof, boy. I mean, I feel like if if I if I had this giant chunk of time in my life and like not other things that I was more excited about, it would be something that I would potentially pr pursue. But I feel like I've had that experience. Like I've gone through 
sort of the learning that it would take to climb a route like that. So it would almost just be like adding another like check mark to the to the you know to the tick list in a way mm-hmm. to do that. And so most likely not. Okay. But if I just really missed El Cap or, or something, you know, and I wanted to have a project that was going to take years, maybe I'd go back there. Yeah, if you hated your skin. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I'd go back there to do it. But I've got so many other things in life that I'm slightly more excited about these days. So, And then what about link-ups? You mentioned that, you know, that kind of excites you more, doing these big link-ups and things. Are there any undone big link-up goals in Yosemite that, that seem obvious to you or that you're thinking about? In Yosemite? I mean... I mean, because it again, seems like you've done little, them all, but it, well, it, yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's got to be bit contrived. But the El Cap Half Dome Watkins link up is like the it's like the big one, right? Like to try and crank all those off in a in a row, and that's to free them all in a day. Yeah, which we did. Alex and I did that. Yeah, but you could keep going. You could do El Cap Half Dome Watkins Lower Middle Middle Higher Higher Spire <laughs> Spire and the rostrum or something. You know, you just trying to do all those. You probably wouldn't do them in a day. Oh, but wow. In a push. To just do, yeah, 48 hours of just like all the all the features in Yosemite, you know, something like that yeah. is potentially possible. How hard is Half Dome now? Did oh, you guys... that's the problem. Yeah, Half it... Dome is messed up. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not freeable the other way. You'd have to find a variation. Actually, the only free route on the northwest face of Half Dome now that's still in existence is the direct, which... Todd Skinner freed back in the day and I did the second ascent of. How so there is that? still a way to free it, but it's like 514. Wow. Todd Skinner broke up the crux pitch in two pitches, so it was like 13 plus when he did it. Okay. But, um, yeah, kind of the the new way to do it is is ledge to ledge. And so that's like a 514. It's like a, one of the most stressful, it's like a 70 meter slab pitch that takes like an hour and a half to climb and then you got to do like a double dyno at the end and so it's one of the most stressful pitches ever (laughs) it's hard to imagine doing that pitch in the middle of like a link up with all these other things but maybe somebody could do it (laughs) oh my gosh um you you said you have a meeting at three yeah but i can do it i can do it here so okay great well in that case let's start wrapping up i've got a bunch more listener questions for you but i will I will have to save those for round two. Hopefully we can do this again sometime. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I've just got some quick questions for you. I listened to, it's fun because before this, I felt like I was hanging out with you this morning because I was listening to your interview with Luke Mihal. Yeah. And uh, you talked about how much you love Disney movies now that you're hanging out (laughs) with your kids. Yeah, quite good. What is your favorite Disney movie? My favorite Disney movie, period. Um... Or right now. You could be in a, a phase. <clears throat> yeah. I don't know. Moana is pretty hard to beat. <laughs> <laughs> that one's pretty good, actually. Yeah. I'll pick that one. Okay. Moana is great. Uh, favorite snack for big walls and or link ups? Uh, favorite snack for big walls and link ups? I mean, like on the Donwall, we started to bring like proper like vegetables and stuff on the thing because we realized we were climbing it in winter like we were kind of living in a, re- in a refrigerator anyways so we'd make these like bagel sandwiches with cream cheese and avocados and all these like <laughs> vegetables and stuff is so good that's um great but also for expeditions maybe like the patagonia provisions um smoked salmon i don't eat Ooh. tons of meat but that stuff's really good okay like it, it just like when you're back in the mountains and you want like something that just tastes so good mm. that's huge 
Yeah. What about when you're doing one of these big in a day suffer fast link up things? What are you eating? I mean, I like I when we did the cuddle traverse last year, this big link or two years ago, this big link up here in Rocky Mountain National Park, I basically just ate shot blocks and I eat tons of shot blocks. Like I eat them all the time and I love them. Um or uh not shot, but like cliff blocks. Cliff blocks, yeah. yeah ton, mm-hmm. I yeah, tons and tons of cliff blocks. Um, but I overdid it on that day. I think I, I think for me, I have to mix in real food. Like mm-hmm. that's, I, I threw up, I got nauseous. It was like kind of miserable for the last bunch of hours. And I think it was completely a like nutrition botch on my part. <laughs> Did you enjoy that experience? Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I mean, until the point where it was, I mean, in retrospect, it was an experience, right? Like, right. it wasn't necessarily about like just that 30 hour pit push, like 24 hours. 20, 28 hours of that 30 hours was incredibly enjoyable. You know, we, we had a great time. Um, so there's just a little bit of a, like there's some time in the end that was rough in the moment, but still kind of fun in retrospect. You like it while you're doing it though, for the most part? Yeah. Like the, yeah, that whole 24 hours, like where everything's going good and you're just like skipping around the mountains and climbing all these incredible routes. And yeah, no, it's super fun. What, what is it? I mean, hearing you say that, I'm like, I imagine that it just makes you feel super capable and empowered and light and strong. And is it that, is it the sensation that you're just like firing off all these peaks one after another or what, what is it that's yeah something about like moving over vast amounts of terrain efficiently is always really appealed to me like i that's one of the reasons my achilles blew up is because i tried to become a runner over covid oh and because i just love that feeling of just like efficiently going through the mountains um yeah i think that's it there's something liberating about just covering vast amounts of terrain Cause I don't have that. So I'm curious. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. No, I, yeah. I mean, I, we already talked about the upper chaos thing. I have like a small degree, so I can kind of imagine what might be enjoyable about that, but yeah. And I, and I think I'm very curious about like the limits of human endurance or mm. my own endurance. Like I've, I've had enough moments in the mountains where I think I'm kind of at my end. And then I realize there's so much more there, or even you break through a lull and all of a sudden, like you feel weightless and empowered mm. and it creates this flow state in this incredible way that I haven't been able to figure out outside of mega endurance. Mm. Um, That's cool. So I'm super fascinated with that. That's kind of what it's all about for me. But I can see why if you haven't gone there before, it just seems painful, <laughs> kind of terrible. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, are you still getting better at that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, with the exception of the last six months yeah i would imagine yeah for sure i mean like i feel like i have so much to learn still like just the fact that i botched the nutrition so bad on that Mm. like um i'm friends with a lot of ultra runners and they go through you know 20 to 30 hour endurance excursions like that all the time and sometimes it goes horribly and they throw up the whole time and other times everything goes right and they figure it out and and that's why like a lot of experience really helps for ultra athletes because they start to figure out all the little tricks. Mm. I, I just saw your post with uh, Killian. Yeah, 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 I was hanging out with Killian. Did you like? Fun. Did you learn anything from him? Were you asking him questions? Uh, or? I mean, he's super fascinated with his like his biology, you know, with like messing with his biology, and so in terms of like being fat adapted and you know 
he, I think he's totally trained himself to run completely off of his fat stores. Mm. And um, I think for that mega endurance stuff, that would be that would be hugely beneficial but it takes years that's one thing i learned is like you can't just like go on a keto <laughs> diet and have that happen really right it's the sort of thing that you your body slowly adjusts over time mm. how hard do you climb on the moon board uh i've climbed a couple v10s okay so i feel like it's proper on the moon that's board. super proper on the moon <laughs> board nice yeah <laughs> Yeah. Nice. Does the finger, do you notice it more on the yes, moon board? Yes. Okay. The moon board is the place I notice it the most, actually. Yeah, like, I have sense. to find the V10s that are the right ones. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. Um, big wall pooping stories. Do you have any? <laughs> I asked, I had a conversation with Jordan Cannon and I asked him this question and he had a couple great ones. But, um, um, I mean, I've been hit by poop bags back in the day when people would toss them. I never tossed them, but there was a period of time where like a lot of people were still tossing them and I got uh, hit for sure a few times. I remember one time I was climbing on the mirror wall with Beth and we passed this party like pretty low down on the route. And then we're doing this traverse. I've had this kind of thing happen a couple times. And, um, and for some reason, I I, I realized I figured that if I if we did the traverse, I had to poop really bad. And if I went and I decided if I just lowered down like half a pitch and pooped down there, then it you know would be out of their way because I just figured they would climb up. But I didn't account for the fact that they had to lower out their haul bag and then haul it up. <laughs> and I remember them hauling their haul bag right through our poop, and we were way up on the wall at that point. But we had two way radios, and there wasn't weren't many channels. You know, it was like the old style where there was only like ten channels. And we ended up finding a channel that they were on and hearing them just like so irate that they had hauled their <laughs> And I had another experience when I did the uh, nose in the free rider in a day. I had a similar experience where I had used my poop bag up um, and I had to go again because we were up there for 24 hours. And so we... Uh, I, you know, I knew this, I was climbing the free rider and I knew the route really well. And there's this one part where I was like, I can just step around this corner to this small ledge and poop over there. And nobody would ever go over there. But it turns out Dean Potter, Potter was trying to climb, climb the uh, South in a day that day. And he had pioneered this variation that went over there. And he actually like found it. He had to put gear in like on either side of my turd. <laughs> just like sit there. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was a good spirit about it, but he told me about it afterwards. So <laughs> I've definitely been, uh, I've, I've diminished a few people's experience. <laughs> Sometimes it just happens up there. Right, know? totally, yeah. And I nowadays mean, people with found... wild bags and stuff, you, you're a little bit more responsible, but yeah. it used to be a disaster up there. Right, sure. I mean, you've been hit by poop bags, so like take some, give some, you know. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> Do you think you'll ever write another book? I bet I will, yeah. What someday. would it be about? I think it would be, I, I I like the idea of doing like some mega expedition that I write a like blow by blow account of the whole thing. Mm, cool. And it would probably be, I, you know, I've like I've like I've been considering this idea of starting from home and biking all the way to Alaska and but like through all these various climbing areas and then in parts of it and, and doing sort of like an environmental study along the way like to mm. telling stories of um like forest fire the effects of forest fires and then when I get up into Alaska the 
old growth logging in Tongass and then up in the Arctic Wildlife Refuge, like the oil drilling, but then also climb along the way, like something like that, like a multifaceted environmental, but like big adventure. It would be written in the form of like blow by blow, like this was this crazy adventure that I went on and suffered and experienced all this stuff, but it would be with the sneaky um, <laughs> side objective of trying to make people care about these places more. Mm. Well, that's awesome, man. I've I've been I follow you. I've been seeing all your um, activism and environmental work, and it's so important. And I really appreciate how you do it because you're so good at doing that. What you just described, like sneaking it in <laughs> in a way that makes people really care about these places and just reminds yeah. us that they might not always be around. And, yeah, it makes some people care. I'm still kind of shocked. Like social media, I'm sort of frustrated that social media is our main way to talk to the audiences these mm. days. That's the best way it seems like. So I use it. Um, and sometimes I like it and sometimes I don't. But in terms of like the engagement on environmental issues versus just climbing stoke, it's like the environmental issues get so little. Mm. Like I feel like some people care, but most people like to just avoid it still. Yeah. Well, I know we're coming up on time. We don't have time to get into it. I'd love to save it for round two. Um, but is there anything that you want to point people towards where they can hear more about what you're up to or check out a great cause that you think is important or anything like that? I mean, when's this publishing, you think? Probably six weeks. Six oh, wow. Years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the big thing I've been focused on lately is this Oak Flat mining issue, which is this very complicated, multifaceted, like big copper mine at at the place in Arizona that was formerly home to the Phoenix bouldering contest, which was the biggest climbing competition in the world. And it's, there's a mine there that's literally going to make the entire boulder <laughs> fall into like a thousand foot pit. Mm. And, um, it's an indigenous site The we need copper, you know, like I understand copper is really important in our en energy transition. So that's why it makes it pretty complicated, but water issues it's just like very i think it's a good way for people to like really wrestle with what it means to be impactful on the planet and um and if they so choose to get involved they can just follow my social media or patagonia climbs channel okay and learn all about it and there's gonna be next week there's gonna be calls to action and stuff and there's some legislative stuff going on these days um i think for climbers that's a pretty big one right now and is it just awareness and then maybe legislation, voting, dollars, like what, what, what is it that, pe that people can do, hopefully? Yeah, you can get involved in various ways. But yeah, generally voting is a huge, I mean, you, you realize more and more all the time that who who is in office is really what makes or breaks these things mm. in a lot of ways. But it's also public opinion does make a big um, impact. So I think it's a little bit about like letter writing and actually telling your legislators, but it's mostly like just by people talking about it, mm. that's really, I mean, I still do think democracy is, is supposed to be, <laughs> if it's working properly, it's like public opinion wins out. So if you can, yeah. if you can get people talking about an issue, then, then the right decisions are probably going to get made. Yeah. Thanks, Tommy. Yeah. I appreciate you, man. Right on. Yeah, yeah that's fun. I really appreciate you doing this. It's uh, so good to talk to you. Um, we, we have so much more we could talk about, but I really enjoyed this conversation. And Yeah, um, likewise. Thanks for thanks for getting here. Yeah, you're an Estes. Maybe we should just do it again sometime. Okay. I'm around too. All right, I'd love it. Hey. 
Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Tommy Caldwell as much as I did. I will link to all things Tommy Caldwell in the show notes for this episode at thenuggetclimbing.com. So if you want to check out any of the films or videos that we mentioned or check out Tommy's Instagram or any of his posts or find a link to purchase his book, you can find all of that in the show notes for this episode at thenuggetclimbing.com. Before you go, don't forget to check out Fizzy Vantage. I take their supercharged collagen every day to support the tendons and ligaments in my fingers, and I really think it helps. Fizzy Vantage has tons of great nutrition products to support your climbing, and if you use code NUGGET15 at checkout, you'll save 15% off your next order. Also, be sure to check out Crimped. Head over to crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the App Store to download it for free and to try it out. And if you love it, consider signing up for Crimped Plus. You'll unlock the entire catalog of workouts. You can build your own custom training plans and unlock skill templates that will turn those weaknesses into strengths. That's crimped.com or find the Crimped app in the App Store for iOS or Android. Also, don't forget to check out the Arc'teryx film Free As Can Be. I watched it this summer, I loved it. And if you're fascinated by Yosemite climbing and the climbing on El Cap, I'm sure you'll dig it too. Also, don't forget to check out Petzl. Shop for Petzl carabiners and quick draws at your local climbing shop or online at petzl.com and get the clipability and durability you deserve. And finally, last but certainly not least, be sure to check out Chalk Cartel. I have an entire box of Chalk Cartel chalk in my van because it's the only chalk I want to climb with. If you're ready to try it out for yourself, head over to chalkcartel.com and use code NUGGET for 20% off your next order. It's my favorite chalk and I know you'll love it too. And that is it, my friends. Thank you so much for listening to the very end. I hope you guys have an amazing week and we will see you next time. Let's do it. 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 Let's do it.